0: Coming to you live from WTHI Delsey Studios in sunny Los Angeles, California, the Hush Hush Society presents Declassified Discussions with Slick Frunk Sanders and the Molly Wop Band, featuring a special guest. And here's your hosts, Mystery Mike and Declassified Thank you. Thank you, Hushlings, and welcome back to the Declassified Discussions. I'm your host,
1: Mystery Mike. And I'm Declassified Dave with the one and only Slick Frank Sanders.
0: On the show tonight, we have a very special guest, one I think we are all excited to have on. Our guest is author of The Forgotten Exodus, The Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution, and Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation.
1: He has been featured in publications such as the UK Telegraph and Daily Mail, serving as guest expert on History Channel's Ancient Aliens. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Bruce Fenton.
2: Thank you very much for the introduction, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to the conversation. And I will certainly endeavor to provide lots of interesting information for the listeners, Uh, but I'll let them judge that for themselves.
0: Bruce, thanks
2: again for being
0: with us. Just tell the Hushlings what you have going on in your world currently. What's up with you?
2: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've been just starting to do some small presentations, fairly locally to to a paranormal. I did one to a paranormal group recently, and another one locally to a kind of a, I guess a local sort of educational group which uh, has been really good. Yeah, live presentations, a bit of a challenge because I'm used to being behind a screen most of the time, you know, talking on shows or, of course, being interviewed uh, from the camera, but not with an audience there. So I've been mean, quite enjoyed that and had good feedback. I've also been involved with a bit of activism around the, you know, the kind of the mandates and lockdowns and all the rest of that. So that's linked me into a community of, of really sort of, you know, good-hearted and interesting people. So in, in some ways, it's you know the the current events have brought together a lot of um, people that would never have known each other, but they're actually really good people. So I can, I can sort of thank, <laughs> can I thank the the uh, the world controllers for causing that? I don't know. It's a bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're bringing us together.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of strange.
0: Yeah, I've seen that you're pretty active on Twitter and I've seen you put up some posts, especially pertaining to the jab and the mandates that are going on, and just certain things just aren't lining up, obviously. A lot of things don't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've been very outspoken about it, especially with your side of the world and everything that's going on there. I feel like here in the US, yeah, it's it's a bit bleak, but also in the UK and Australia, especially, we're Mm -hmm. seeing like, really ridiculous, almost a police force that's going out there to enforce these things. Real briefly, how do you feel about that? Like, I know how you feel just, just from your social medias, but what are your thoughts behind that?
2: Well, look, you know, I view this in a, a, I guess, a zoomed out perspective, which is that I can see that we are seeing the rollout of a what's called a technocratic state, really, which is where technology is used for absolute tracking of everything you do you know all of your actions online your physical activities through cameras systems you know facial recognition cameras and through the normal security cameras um that this this is basically the chinese kind of style um of system where you know someone in china can be found within minutes they did a sort of test where some journalist had to hide from the authorities and within you know within a few minutes the police were there because you know you've got the tracking cameras satellites you've got people informing on you you know it's that's the kind of system that's being rolled out and so while many people are just focused on the you know the jabs and stuff that the reality is it's a much bigger picture that you know with the the digital id system that's being pushed which is a massive part of this And the fact that that digital ID system will also double as your your digital wallet for central bank cryptocurrencies, which are completely traceable, can be turned off, uh, limited to certain products. So when you see this bigger picture, you can see that you are being, you know, kind of funneled into the brave new world scenario. And that's my deep concern. It's not so much limited to mandates of, you know, bogus, risky (laughs) injections, but the bigger picture.
0: I completely agree. We've actually been talking about that since the beginning of the mandates and since the beginning of lockdowns, that when you speak to a lot of people about this, they say, well, the government already tracks you through your phone. Mm -hmm. Why would they chip you? Or why would they... You're not seeing the bigger picture. The bigger Mm -hmm. picture boils down to controlling your funds, controlling where Mm -hmm. you can go and where you can't go, whether you can leave your house. Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot of people just kind of blindfold themselves to these things and blindly trust the government. Yeah. It's very interesting the time and what we're living through.
2: Yeah. I mean actually, I mean, and this kind of connects into my work on the extraterrestrial component a bit, but but when you talk about authority, and this is kind of what we're dealing with, this problem of authority, is the idea that there are people who stand above us. You know, whether that's the political class, the royal class Or the sort of billionaire magnates, you know, but they're not just that they have more power than you, but that they have some kind of intrinsic authority that positions them above you, and that you have to listen to them and you have to receive these dictates and act on them. Now, that to me is a delusion. That is a widespread kind of psychosis that people are in, and it's it's completely delusional. It's a hallucination that such a thing can exist. You know, all humans are equal. Now, doesn't mean they all have equal skills and equal money, but we are fundamentally equal in our rights of what we can do, you know, whether you kill someone or not or steal or not. You know, these are fundamental things we all understand to be, you know, whether right or wrong, and that, that applies to everybody. Now, the only time you can have a position of authority over all humans in in theory, at least, would be if we're dealing with something like a deity, you know, of some sort, whether, you know, a prime creator, god of the universe, or some other really legitimately higher being that's in some higher dimensional realm that is, you know, kind of compared to us is godlike. And now that could be an alien, could be some kind of interdimensional being. So those you can kind of perceive as possibly authorities, because they are not equal to us. They are different in some sense, right? But other than that, all humans are positioned at the same level. So my one of my fundamental focuses is trying to help people understand that there is no authority, there is nobody above them, and that as soon as enough of us live that directly rather than just you know, as a concept, this system just evaporates in a puff of smoke. It's not even a, a conflict that you have to win. It literally would just disappear.
0: Now Bruce, we're going to take a little bit of a left turn and kind of start to structure into some more stuff that involves the work that you've done. Can you tell us a little bit about the megalithic structures that you came across in the Amazon jungle as well as the Georgian Caucasus?
2: Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. And the two sort of interweave a little bit. I was living in Ecuador for 5 years between uh, 2000 what well, end of 2011, early 2012 in ecuador um and fairly soon after arriving i think it was a few months after arrival that my my then sort of friend now wife daniela uh, and i were in a we ended up in a meeting with a, a local kind of shamanic healer and it was about you know a kind of healing issue but there was also another couple there that had to see them and the gentleman revealed that he had just got back from an expedition into the jungles in the yanganatis which is kind of um part of the Amazon jungle, but it's it's probably best known because of its connection with the legends of the Inca gold and the missing treasures of Atahualpa, which are said to have been taken into the Anganatis, which is a particularly hilly, sort of mountainous, swampy region of jungle with, with basically nobody living in that region, you know, so it's quite remote and difficult to go into. Now, this guy said that they had been to a sort of megalithic site, which they suspected was linked to giants. And the reasoning for that was that some large hammer-like objects that they found there that seemed to be, you know, oversized tools that wouldn't be applicable for normal-sized human beings. Um, there was kind of large megalithic wall with the polygonal-type blocks that, that people probably be familiar with um, some of the sites, like, you know, in Peru, if we've got these huge multi-ton blocks with these many faceted faces Uh, and these these are very much similar to the ones that i saw in ecuador at this site after i you know visited myself um so there's definitely seems to be some kind of link there you know it's a kind of a really mysterious site shouldn't be there and is not associated to any known culture nobody's supposed to live in that region so it you know was a, a, a huge mystery
0: yeah, based on a lot of those megalithic structures, and this is kind of an odd question, but do you believe that there were a race of giants at one time or another?
2: Yeah, I, I tend to. Yeah, I tend to think that we certainly must have had at least at least some population, whether it was small or something, but some population of very tall people that you know we could call giants. Something in the region of I would say two to two and a half meters tall. You know, based on some of the discoveries that have been made, you know, either of skeletons of, you know, quite tall people or of artifacts that seem oversized. Now, I don't I don't really subscribe to the idea that there were giants, you know, that were like, 10 meters tall. You know, some people talk about these giants that are 10, 20, you know, 50 meters, like really huge giants, like out of um, children's storybooks, you know. Um, but I do think that there were people up to two and a half meters tall, and that seems to be the case we had uh there's i'm just thinking there's a really good there's a couple of discoveries down in mexico that suggest that you know finds of skeletons that are over two meters you know and also if you look at the the tomb of hannah pacal who was the lord of palenque in mexico which got a famous site you know made quite famous by von Daneken's um hypothesis that the lid of pacal's sarcophagus shows um, him riding in a spaceship basically and i think you've, you've probably familiar with that and Mm -hmm. that site there you know in the sarcophagus they found a skeleton that was around about two meters tall and that's that's quite interesting because although that's not you know hugely giant particularly for our modern world you know we have to consider that the maya people of the time were very short you know probably up to about five foot tall so around that so if you think you know you've got all these other warriors are like five foot something and then you've got a skeleton that is, you know, over seven feet tall. I mean, that's quite starkly different. And um, some of the iconography at the site, you—if know, you look at the Temple of the Foliated Cross, for example, at Palenque, it's got imagery of the lords of, the, of that city. You know, but some of them are as uh, tall, well, taller than a man standing on another person who's kind of um, kneeling down on all fours. You know, and they're standing on their back, and they're at the shoulder height of this lord right? So there's several pictures like that showing different lords of Palenque. Um, so that makes you wonder, you know, if they're showing you what they saw, then these lords were quite unlike the other people. Um, and they're this sort of connects to to what we saw, you know, also with the the Jordan Caucasus stuff, you know, the Science Channel took me out there because of uh, having heard about my expeditions into the Amazon jungle and the connection with possibly a culture of giants you know, due to these large hammers. Um, so they they kind of spoke to me about maybe doing some research there, but in the end they went with uh, another line of research they had been investigating, which was this uh, giant bones found up in the Caucasus Mountains in the Georgian Republic. Um, and they decided that actually it would be quite good to have me come over as the kind of you know English speaking ancient mysteries expert and team up with the local <laughs> Georgian researchers who uh, had already been up there they knew where it was and they'd you know previously found bones up there and that we did as kind of a follow-up expedition into these mountains but they'd already found giant bones and um the the what they seemed to be suggesting was that there was two uh, men of over about two, I think it was about two and a half meters, but two to two and a half meters tall who had been buried in this kind of crypt. I think it's in a sort of seated position, like buried in this crypt. Um, and so quite a strange kind of way of being buried. And that this is literally just in a small, there's a small kind of church or temple structure that's in ruins up on this mountain. And nearby you've got what looked to me after we went up there to be some little piles of rubble that may have been small cottages at some point who knows when, but really it's, it's really out in the middle of nowhere. There's, you know, the, the huge, uh, Bajor-y kind of forest, national park, uh, and when you go up to these hills that, you know, they can't live in them year round because they get covered in snow. So, I mean, there's no permanent settlements in this forest, uh, no real history of there having been. So again, it was kind of similar to the, the story in Ecuador, you know, you've got what appears to be a few mysterious structures somewhere nobody has supposed to have lived and it's in a really inaccessible place and some suggestion of you know a lost culture and possibly giants so it's interesting the way the two sites linked up that's fascinating <laughs>
0: now you have a great story of a trip to egypt where you mention your friend richard gabriel And Hmm. a series of synchronicities around that trip and everything that followed. Would you mind telling that story?
2: Sure. Yeah, that was a little bit before I left to Ecuador, actually. So that was, I went out to Egypt in November 2011. And it just sort of happened by, you know, one of those kind of fortunate synchronicities. That my friend Richard was going out at the same time because he was a kind of a regular out to Egypt doing a lot of investigation into what's beneath the Giza plateau and into some of the the less well-known sites and um tracking a, a basically a kind of a plan on the ground of sites that align with the stars that there's a kind of a there's an as above so below star map so you can literally you could plot sites on a map based on alignments with the stars if you take the pyramids and you take some of the other well-known sites and you plot them against the stars that line up with their positioning you can also uncover where there should be other sites based on where you know you can see a star in the sky versus the ground you can find other sites which is quite interesting um and so he he was involved in that and also going down underground into some of the tunnel networks which i mean not everyone's familiar with them but i'm I'm sure quite a few of your listeners be aware that you know Giza literally translates as mouth of the tunnels i mean that whole area has got extensive tunnel networks beneath it and there's loads of shafts all over the plateau anyone who's been to the pyramids will know that you can you can see these square shafts cut in the ground all over the place uh, and also entrances into sides of the cliff faces and all sorts of stuff so it's very obvious there's a lot of tunnels there many of them most of them are you know boarded off um, so they don't want you poking around in them. But if you know people and, you know, you have some access, you can get into some of them. Now, thanks to Richard, you know, I went to a few sites that I just would not have known about, you know, that he took us to. A um, uh, particularly important was Abu Gorab. Now, Abu Gorab is considered by some of the mystery kind of brotherhoods in Egypt to be one of the oldest, if not the oldest kind of site in that Giza Plateau, which is kind of interesting that there would have been something there certainly going back many thousands of years, whether it's the structure you see there now, which is kind of a ruined small uh, pyramid-like temple. Uh, But outside of this ruin, there's this really stunning and what I understand is fairly unique alabaster platform with a it's called a hutep symbol but it looks like a, a circle of alabaster uh, surrounded by a square of alabaster and some other kind of like triangular parts and so if people look it up they'll find it but there's also a really interesting article by william henry the stargate at abu Ghraib. now i didn't know about that at the time but the the funny thing was you know while we were there and we had a sort of an evening kind of private um space there while whilst there i got this really strange kind of um Feeling of its connection to the stars, but our, one of our friends who was with us, you know, she really she got this kind of spontaneous feeling. That it was a stargate. It was saying, you know, like open, the, you know, that we needed to say, open the stargate. And so we literally just chanted together, like, open the stargate. And it's very weird. It's all very spontaneous and um, mm. just intuitive, you know, intuitive stuff that just came up. And then afterwards, I had this really weird feeling that there was something to do with the Pleiades. And I found myself kind of looking up at these stars. I like, could see they seemed to align with the entrance way as they were rising. And, uh, I was literally kind of talking to them. This is uh, for me quite surreal because I've never been really into this idea that there's, you know, the Pleiadians and all this stuff that, you know, you're, I'd be familiar with from the new age kind of side of things. But I actually found myself sort of saying, you know, why have you abandoned, you know, Earth and humanity? And why don't you come back? It's just totally out of nowhere after having, you know, spent a little bit of time on this platform and at this site. And, Nothing immediately. I'd love to say you know that you know a spaceship came down and you know <laughs> the <laughs> temple lit up or something, but there, there was nothing like that. It was all very you know anticlimactic. Considering you got this strange feeling that there was something about a connection between the site and the Pleiades, but it was um after that, about two months later, that my wife had some very bizarre kind of metaphysical connections with beings who eventually would lead to sort of saying that they were connected with the Pleiades so it does seem that it opened up some kind of consciousness connection with an intelligence that is linked with the Pleiades so it was very strange I mean I did other things while I was out in Egypt you know into the pyramids and into underground areas but I mean that was what really stands out because it kind of connected into the next part of my journey which of course you know was in Ecuador and then have this event my wife having these contacts soon after that we have that meeting where i hear about the giant um, city you know and that giant city connects me to the georgian thing so i end up from then on really in a very strange flow of events you mentioned that early earth
1: in one of your books was most likely seeded by an extraterrestrial civilization and you had just mentioned it before the pleiades and You'd state that our first ancestors were most likely Homo pleiadin.
2: Yeah, I, I give that name in the book because I mean it's um, a way to differentiate from the way the mainstream kind of looks at this. But yeah, there's, there's two sort of things there. First of all, if you look at the, the early origins of life on our planet, you know it appears that something, you know, some single-celled life form of some sort was probably here around about 4.5 billion years ago. Whereas the, the planet itself formed about 4.6 billion years ago. So that's actually quite short, really. So you've got like 100 million years where, you know, it's n- there's no signs of life in the, both in the genetics and archaeological evidence, you know, we're looking at that there's no sign of life. Um, and this planet is, at the time, is going to be fairly inhospitable, you know, because it was quite fiery and magma like and gaseous and all the rest of it at the beginning. So it's almost as though as soon as the planet starts to become, you know, kind of settling down and able to support life, life appears instantly. Now, that, that's kind of strange because it was always assumed that it would take a very, very long time for geology to produce, you know, sort of the chemistry that then can lead to biology and that this is this so kind of slow, complex, anomalous event, which is called abiogenesis. Mm-hmm. But if life appears almost as soon as the planet is hospitable, that really starts to Point towards what we call panspermia or exogenesis, as my book title is it, which is that life is already out there in space and is basically landing on the surface of the planet. So there's two ways that can happen. Either there's life drifting through the cosmos, such as bacteria, viruses, maybe small organisms on comets, asteroids, and on cosmic dust, and that it rains down on planets. And if they're suitable, you know, it blossoms alternatively it could be that there is an intelligence out there you know an advanced extraterrestrial intelligence that either fires out seeds of life and those could be you know small metallic spheres packed with organic material or the alternative they may actually you know land on planets you know and, and place life there in some form so there's these two different ways of looking at it i personally suspect it's intelligently directed but either one of those views changes of course everything that we think about the story of life and the story of our planet and also changes the chances of there being other life out in you know the universe because of course if panspermia brought life here then it should bring life to many other worlds and if there is an intelligent life form out there that seeds worlds again you'd expect to have many worlds that are seeded so Either of those scenarios then gives us a bigger hope for lots of life out in the cosmos. Now, in terms of the Homopladean side of it, you know, I argue that over the course of evolution that there's been at least a number of kind of interventions where we've had, you know, intelligences that have come here and have altered the direction of evolution. Now, there's, a, there's a few kind of key points. One of them is if you look at the Cambrian explosion, uh, there's been a number of scientists have kind of highlighted that as a possible ingression point for some kind of external genetic information. If you look at the work, of particularly Professor um, Chandra Wickramsinger, who is really kind of the man when it comes to panspermia, that you know he's suggested that the Cambrian explosions kind of evidence of many new life forms appearing with no precursors really points to there being a need for some kind of external information coming into our system. Because you know DNA basically is information. So if you have new life forms, then you need new information or, you know, a massive amount of mutations. So what's causing that? He suspects that we had a alien retrovirus that rained down, that you know could come down on dust or something like that. And that this retrovirus infected you know, many life forms in the early Earth, and that these these sort of infection carries with it information because we, we know that retroviruses can carry information from even from the cells or from another life form they've infected, and then deposit that inside of other organisms. And we we ourselves have got a lot of information from retroviruses, so this could have provided the the kind of the kickstart to. A huge number of kind of mutations in the existing life forms leading to this Cambrian explosion. And that makes a lot of sense. And then we've also got a couple of other points when very strange things happen. I mean, my main focus is obviously on humans, where we can see that around two million years, well, first of all, you've got, you know, hominins arise about something like, start to rise about seven million years ago, you know, that we have chimp like, you know, they're kind of chimp like. Um, creatures like the australopithecines and stuff that are around seven million years ago uh, recently there's evidence in um, crete of a hominin perhaps walking around on crete six million years ago so it could be an ancestor uh, in the mediterranean as well uh, but these these beings you know were fairly i would call them ape men type beings the first what i, what I see is recognizable human really is homo erectus and that appears about two million years ago and there's a number of anomalies that occur you know it's got some changes in the genes which give it a lot of um, additional um, density of its neurons and stuff like that it's a very human looking kind of hominin and again so i think there's something's happened then and then the next really key leap is just after 800,000 years ago sort of around 780,000 years ago ish that we have what i consider to be the origins of homo sapiens and that being an intervention event where the genetics are modified and that there's a number of signatures for that, and that we have then this radical change which leads to all of the large-brained hominins, so Neanderthals, Denisovans, you know, modern humans, and others who are yet to be given names but we know exist because of genetic um, signatures found in our genomes or in the genomes of Neanderthals and Denisovans. So I say that that there's a, a really key event happens then, and that's why I kind of refer to it as The homo Pleiadians, because that's the event i say is to do with you know another visitation from the pleiades and that this is the information that's come to me uh, through additional sources and that this really to me then is a a new kind of creature because it's not just evolving through natural processes but this is a radical leap that occurs and produces our lineage
0: so bruce with with that being said how do you combat the Fermi argument with panspermia?
2: Well, the, the Fermi paradox, I guess, is only a paradox if you don't recognise there having been evidence of visitation or of life out there. So, I'm going to say the work that I'm doing itself r- basically ends the Fermi paradox because the, the the idea is that look, you know, if there's lots of life out there, uh, some of it should have reached the level of intelligence. You know, if there's let's say thousands of advanced civilizations that have risen you know over the billions of years that there should be lots of intelligent life out there and so they expected to see some signs of that within our solar system or just beyond you know by looking out into space with you know the various kinds of telescopes like radio telescopes and whatnot that we would detect some signs of these intelligences or alternatively we would see evidence of past visitation to our own solar system now they obviously after various attempts of looking at that he was kind of decided that there was no evidence and that therefore um that there hadn't been any such you know visitations and that this meant that maybe there was no life and this is kind of how the fermi paradox comes around but But hang on a minute, you know, if there is evidence of a prehistoric visitation, which is what, you know, so I make the case for, then the Fermi paradox vanishes. And in fact, we should expect to see that evidence. So rather than um, if seeing this, you know, is not the paradox, people say, well, you know, it's crazy, you know, finding aliens is in a way, you know, crazy and, you know. But it's not really. It was the crazy thing was not finding aliens. And I think that sometimes is hard for people to get their heads around is that that was the crazy thing. And for a long time it was expected we would see, you know, life on Mars and maybe on the moon and Venus. And, you know, it was kind of accepted life was everywhere. You know, people were looking up and seeing channels on and houses and stuff on Mars, right, with their telescopes. <laughs> uh, and people accepted that. That was kind of accepted. It's like, yeah, obviously there's Mars people. and stuff. So it actually was a shock in a way to find that there wasn't lots of clear evidence of aliens so this kind of rectifies that by saying well look hang on a minute the evidence is there but it's been missed in the in the records because it's been interpreted in a different way and we can we can get a little bit into what that evidence is if you like but so i i would say yeah i'm rectifying that paradox
1: why do you think people in academics have been so against adopting all this new information when it comes to human origins or evolution and why can't they just let go of the clovis first
2: yeah i mean we have a few points when you when you look at um, how paradigms function i mean it's it's kind of interesting because you have something like say the the out of africa model which is you know is the greater paradigm for human origins and evolution you know of our species and then within that you've got kind of these these different areas you know subtopics like you know where did neanderthals live or or how did um how did we migrate from a to b and all but they they operate within a paradigm and those paradigms are quite hard to displace because you know all the science is being done is being done from within that framework and and so even if you change parts of the story like you say oh it turns out neanderthals weren't european they're asian you know that's quite radical in a way but it still will be fitted into the framework of but hominins arose in africa migrated out populated eurasia and then they did all these other things right so so you have a greater overarching paradigm and those because everybody working in that field in paleoanthropology is working within that paradigm they are they are functioning day to day in it and teaching it and have written books on it and are very invested in it okay so you have a human you know human interest problem you kind of have the investment in it you also have financial issues you've got people that are making their careers out of it you know they've made their names out of it they're all their books so there is a vested interest for them to not be shown to be wrong now i'm not gonna say all scientists are like that some will be quite happy to concede and say you know i've got it all wrong um but there there is definitely some bias there with paradigms and it's it's often the case that it's not better evidence that displaces a paradigm It's Either people dying off or you basically smoothing the deal for them so that they get something out of accepting the new paradigm so there's a human issue it's not pure science that dictates these changes and if you have a paradigm in society you know social paradigms change those can be very bloody you know now we see that in uprisings and you know and and uh, you know political events that sometimes they're very bloody because people are invested in the old paradigm Right. So it may not be quite as bloody in science, but it does often involve older people having to die off, you know, the, the gatekeepers having to die off, or them seeing clear advantage, um, or simply being overwhelmed by popular opinion changing massively. So that's what we kind of had. That's what we had with Clovis first. It wasn't that there, there wasn't lots of evidence to suggest older presence of humans in the Americas, um, but those sites were being just poo pooed and ignored. Sites like the blue, there's the bluefish caves and stuff, which already suggested that there were humans there 20,000 or so years ago, were just kind of ignored. And you know, the people involved often were like ridiculed um, and ignored. If you go down to Brazil, there's a lot of sites in Brazil that strongly indicate humans present um, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 years ago. And those again have been ignored. And I think part of that is a bias against uh, non. European and non-North American scientists as well, that the field is tends to be uh, somewhat headed from, you know, the North, North America and Europe. So there's, I think, definitely been a bit of um, kind of ignoring some of the work that's come out of the Brazilian academics. So yeah, there's, there's different kinds of human problems that we face. And that's the same in, you know, alien signature topics, or, you know, all sorts of different spheres really of research where you'll find that these biases you know you look at Egypt or the idea of older civilizations you know that you know when we found or not we but when Gobekli Tepe was kind of revealed obviously that really undermined uh, a lot of academic positions who said there's no way that you know anyone could have been constructing um, big kind of megalithic sites um, before five six thousand years ago that you know there wasn't the kind of cultures that would do that it was just hunter-gatherers and now you look at Gobekli Tepe and the other Sites near there, and obviously there's quite a few of them that are in that region. There are massive megalithic sites, twelve thousand years old. Uh, they, it starts to completely undermine the paradigm that that civilization arose six thousand years ago, or even really what we call civilization. I mean, there's questions around that because there's just terminology we use. But I mean, these people were builders. You know, whether they still hunted and gathered or whether they were somewhat sedentary the, the bottom line is they were building enormous fixed structures that would have been utilized you know again and again so they weren't completely transitory uh, these are the kind of things that have really have shown us that we have to be wary of these kind of paradigms that say you know there cannot be anything below this layer because we know there isn't you know uh, and that's been a problem and that was where the Clovis first you know you don't need to dig below um twelve thousand years because there's nothing there you know <laughs> So,
0: just to take a step back, really quick, could you explain the Bluefish Caves a little bit more? Since I mean, I've I've never heard of it. Just a little interested.
2: Yeah, the Bluefish Caves. I think I'm just thinking when he found it, it was, um, well, certainly a few decades ago that they found evidence of um, a hominin presence in the Bluefish Bluefish Caves, which I think is up, really up towards um, the far north. So, it'd be one of the they think one of the first kind of entrance sites if you cross from beringia into north america that there's a cave site there where they found um i think it was um tool evidence that they found there that suggested that there'd been you know humans present in the caves and there was a guy who spent years and years kind of you know, pushing for this site to be recognized. And, you know, he did some, you know, dating on it, and the dating suggested it was over 20,000, I think 22,000 years old. Um, And then when it eventually was redated, I think it even came back as maybe slightly older. But it took a long time, yeah, a really long time for that to be recognized as a, you know, human habitation site, Uh, despite the evidence being really good. You know, there was a lot of bias there saying that, you know, it can't be because, you know, humans weren't in the Americas at that time so it's that kind of closed loop thinking and there's been other sites like that I mean if you look at the uh, down in more more southern from that there's the I'm trying to think of the called now there was um, a few years back the Topper site there was a um, discovery of Evidence below. The guy dug below the kind of the Clovis layers. You know, he just—I think—he just wanted to see. You know, was there anything there? And, and what he ended up discovering was uh, material evidence suggesting a human presence fifty thousand years ago at Topper. So, I mean, that—that's just you know, obviously, a complete rewrite. And that one still remains kind of, I suppose, controversial and quite ignored. You know, because it's such a jump back that most of the academic community just, just will not acknowledge that as being a possibility at this point you know it's a very slowly adapting system where they say okay well 20,000 yeah okay we can go there 25,000 oh we can go there but <laughs> they're really loath to jump back to these earlier dates of like 50,000 which you see not only topper but again down in brazil um at a number of sites cliff um, habitation sites and art sites as well as in fires uh, evidence they have got carbon dating from old fires and stuff down in brazil which again support the idea there were people. Forty, fifty thousand 50,000 years ago in the Americas. And if you also, if you look at the old, is, there's two different groups of people, really. Because if you look at the oldest evidence of, of the first humans into the Americas, uh, what they find is um, Australoid type or kind of like, a, what's it, like a, Aboriginal, Australian, Papuan type people. Right, and also there's been a genetic signature that's been found now in in people in parts of the Brazilian Amazon and elsewhere, which is very similar to Papuan people. So they know that there was some kind of population in the Americas that was replaced by the Clovis people and others that come in. But this older population seems to be from Australasia. You know, it's very close related to them. Now, the, that in itself is a conundrum because they're like, well, you know. How could these people be here? And they seem to be, you know, the first people. Now, I, I personally would say that this is part of my work. you know, the, the Inter Africa theory is that we had a migration out of Australasia around about 50,000 to 60,000 years ago. And they populated um, Asia, then, you know, Europe, and then also some of it went across into the Americas. I personally think that people went along the ice, along the the southern ice sheets. It was the same thing really happened in the north across Beringia that we now know that these people were using small watercrafts to go along the ice and they didn't have to walk across the ice sheets. They sailed along you know fishing and stuff and ended up on some of the small islands off the coast of you know northern america um so they definitely were using boats right i think that these people down in the southern part of australasia also did the same thing that they were ice specialists who you know used the resources the marine resources and you know any life on the ice and worked their way across from what would today be tasmania to Tierra de fuego and that they entered the americas from the south not the north and that's why, if you look, if you um, if you look at some of the information about the the people of Tierra del Fuego, very unique culture, but they have got some really interesting masks and ritual masks, some of which are giant T-block shapes, right, like the like the blocks at um, Göbekli Tepe, which is quite telling. But there's also got um, other you know things that the ritual things that they do, which are in common with uh, Australasian Aboriginal people, and it looks like there's an overlap of culture there. And then, of course, you've got all these. I say the genetic signatures. They also had Darwin visited Tierra del Fuego, and um, he said the people made these kind of they were like animals with these guttural noises and animal sounds, and you know, barely human. But that's interesting because we know that um, the, some of the earliest languages are believed to be like whistles and click type languages. Now, whistle and click languages are known in in parts of um, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in parts of Australasia. And it would seem also down in do Fuego, so that's that's quite telling. So you've got these very early kind of languages, the same as we'd see in part that existed parts of Australasia, appearing there. So these were people with some of the first kinds of language, you know, that he encountered down there, and they have these cultural links. So I mean, there's a lot of evidence. I think is pointing to that being the entrance point through which a pre Clovis people populated southern and central America, and parts of, you know, the lower part of North America before the Clovis people came in after the cataclysm, basically 12,000 years ago, um, with the comet strikes and possibly solar storms as well, which, you know, we see from the arguments made by uh, Graham Hancock and Robert Schock, you know, respectively on comet impacts and solar storms. But these people, their cultures were kind of leveled. But the survivors, it seems, interacted with with the new people coming in from the Beringia bridge and that we have this mixing so in some places you see these remnants of them in terms of the genetics like in the you know deep brazilian amazon where these populations have been isolated they still carry traces of that interbreeding event when these two cultures met and uh, they absorb they absorbed the survivors that were already there from the cataclysm that's my interpretation and if you look at like the olmec heads the olmec heads i would suggest portray uh, Australasian Aboriginal type people, and for a long time, people said, "Oh, they look like Africans." Well, yeah, they look kind of like Africans, but if you you know think about it, look at it again, you know, these can easily be um, people from Australasia, and these heads may be um, as old, and could be twenty thousand years old, thirty thousand years old, because they're being dated by having been found in the same layer as Olmec material, right? But let's say you're Olmec, and you you revere these ancient heads as being left by the the original people, you know, the, the godlike first people that were on this land. So you display these heads alongside your own artwork, right? And so when your culture falls into ruin, of course, they're in the same layer, but you can't direct date the stone. So that will just be dated as being Olmec, okay? I, I suggest that those Olmec heads are much older.
1: I'm, I'm super fascinated in all this stuff. I, I think I read Fingerprints of the Gods like 10 years ago, and that really opened
2: my eyes up. Yeah, we have a very different story. I mean, you know, when you don't, when you use the evidence, the same evidence that the academics are using, but you don't limit it to within the paradigm that they are essentially beholden to in many ways, then you start to see that there are other interpretations. You know, I don't use different evidence to the academics i interpret the same evidence differently to them and i think that's always a key part because Mm -hmm. if you say let go you know i go out and i do my own like alternative archaeology or what they'd call pseudo-archaeology you know and i was digging with a trowel and saying i've dated this skull to you know fifty thousand years ago you know you could write quite rightly say well you know he's just making it up, really, isn't he? You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's got no dating equipment. You know, he's not trained to do archaeology, which is quite right. So I don't do that. You know, I use the same academic papers and the same artifacts and stuff that, you know, are being discussed in the mainstream, you know, papers and journals. Um, But I just point out that there there are different interpretations that often... Uh, remove anomalies and, and that should be the aim of you know scientific endeavors is you know if you've accrued anomalies in your hypothesis those anomalies have to be rectified because otherwise there's something wrong with your hypothesis you know something's missing so if you can't explain that then you've got a problem and that's that's what i've done with the you know the out of africa model you know in the forgotten exodus is i could see that there was glaring anomalies i mean i'm not going too much into depth just Consider that if you if you were to talk to kind of material archaeologists who looking at the physical finds, they would tend to say that you know humans came out of Africa around about seventy thousand years ago. This is partly based on physical archaeology, partly on genetics. But that around seventy thousand years ago, you have the recent out of Africa migration with a, a group of people you know coming into the Middle East, and then they populate basically Eurasia, then down into Oceania and the Americas, and that that is the conventional model right? But then if you talk to the genetics guys, right, or the geneticists involved in this, they say that the the evidence is of a split around about 50 to 60,000 years ago. And that's very clear in the data that you can see that that would be the product of this, of a migration event, right? So you've got something happening then. Well, that's at least 10,000 years different, okay? So so you've got a problem there. And if you've got an anomaly, you can say, well, hang on, you're saying that this out of Africa event must be around 70,000 years ago for some reasons. And then, you know, this other group is saying, well, no, it has to be more like 50 to 60,000. Then what is going on there? That has to be rectified. Now, the conventional model doesn't rectify that. Uh, I do. I say, well, hang on a minute. These are two different events. So you've got one event, which is a A mistaken interpretation of an ingression into africa so in other words you've got people going into africa 72,000 years ago and they're going there because there's been a climate disaster the lake toba supervolcano has uh, unleashed cooling and you know coverage of the skies with dust in the northern hemisphere so these people are displaced so there's all sorts of problems going on you know sun's not reaching the ground it's so easy the plants are dying there's acid rain there's you know all the problems you'd get from a supervolcano some of these people walk across the, the um, Bab el mandab Straits, which is down by Yemen, and into East Africa. And so these are climate refugees, and they arrived there about 70,000 years ago carrying their male and female uh, genetic lineages with them. And we see those lineages appear in East Africa around 70,000 years ago, which is part of the recent African migration theory. Because you say, well, these are these, um, like L3, mtDNA and that these are the precursors to modern Eurasian people, which is somewhat somewhat true but they are going into africa we can even see in the models that l3 spreads westward and southward into africa it doesn't go out and there's also a climatic disaster a massive drought hits that region around the same time and uh, you know a few climatologists said this would be the worst time to walk out of africa imaginable right and and then if you look at the what's happening 50 sixty thousand years ago the climate's recovering and so now people are expanding out of their climate refuges and now there'll be two major refuges is southern Africa below the equator and Oceania below the equator so you've got these refugees and then as the climate's recovering about 60,000 years ago I suggest the evidence points to people coming up from Oceania into southeast Asia and repopulating Eurasia from there not from Africa and, and this is something that a model I've built around the anomalies that are in the conventional studies. Not something that I've gone and done separately. Um, everything is in the major, you know, mainstream journals and in their papers. But why my my theory is stronger is quite simply it rectifies more of the anomalies. It's as simple as that. And I'm sorry, that's I know it's somewhat technical, but I mean it's <laughs>
0: no, it's it's incredibly fascinating.
2: And it just shows what it really points to as well is just to make the point that, you know, that you you have to be very careful of just, of just seeing, you know, just because a hypothesis is very popular, very well accepted and established and is repeated again and again in the media, that doesn't mean it really holds water that, you know, people should learn to look a bit closer, you know, look at the studies, look at the papers underlying the positions you're told. Because if you read nearly any newspaper story on our uh, on the early kind of migrations it will say you know pretty much after humans left africa around 60 70 80 thousand years ago you'll see that date change depending on the newspaper because again because of this anomaly problem but they'll say you know after that you know then they'll say we found all these changes that maybe neanderthals did this or Denisovans did this but they never really question what about that bit that migration out that's taken as a fact right that's just taken as a as a dogmatic fact they never support that in those articles they just give you that like well we know that's a fact that these, these, you know, the first modern humans came out of Africa around 70,000 years ago and populated Eurasia is a fact. Well, it's not. And they, they should supply the evidence to make those kind of bold statements at the beginning of news stories before talking about neanderthals or some new fossil that was found somewhere, right? Because it, it's been ingrained into people that that is unquestionable dogma and to even question it you will often be accused of being some sort of racist because you're saying that what are you trying to say that you know it wasn't africans it was white people you know uh, and people tend to leap to that kind of position right That you can't even question the recent out of africa is an, an, an absolute dogma right? And people should be really wary of when you get those kind of dogmatic positions that why is that? Is there somebody who, you know, stands to gain and is defending that dogma? You know, why aren't they sort of supplying evidence each time they say that? Say, and we know it's, they came out because of what, you know? (laughs) Because if they start doing that, they'll find that their position begins to crumble. Um, And I had an article that was published in Uh, forbes and it was spiked within a few hours and that was me criticizing recent out of africa and literally within hours that article had been pulled and the journalist was told never to refer to my work again so obviously it spooked somebody jesus
0: such a bonehead defense mechanism to to automatically attribute something to to race especially when it comes to scientific findings
2: it's because you know if you look historically, there has been you know some concerted attempts to say that you know Europeans were the first people and that you know that they were the most advanced because they've got today the most technological cultures and therefore that they must have been you know superior going back thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, and also you know of course there was you know there was white supremacy. I mean there's been black supremacy, white supremacy, uh, you know Indian supremacy. So I mean these these are issues too. And of course so there have been scientists who have bent over backwards to try and show that you know that their own um, kind of ethnic group was the best I mean that's always going to happen but yeah we shouldn't assume that by default and I think one of the ironic things as well particularly is that you know in my model I'm replacing black Africans with black aboriginals so I mean it's it's very hard to say that there's a a race or a gender in there do you know I mean I'm not even australian or aboriginal or you know in fact i'm I'm mixed race a recent african really because i mean my family are trinidadian you know slave descendants on my mum's side and i'm white english on my dad's side so if anything i would taken quite a bit of pride in the past the idea that african people were the first you know so even for me it was a bit of a Mm. little bit you know discomfort in finding actually that that was wrong and that you know i had believed that just partly based on propaganda if you like or um, and partly maybe self kind of pride of it wanting to be true. So, I mean, we have to be careful of our own biases, you know, so if anything, I would have more of a vested interest in preserving that story than attacking it on a personal level.
0: Yes, very true. I want to dive into some of this, uh, the extraterrestrial genetic modification that you're into and, can you elaborate on some of the mitochondrial DNA evidence that suggests homo sapiens came from Australia and not Africa?
2: I'm um, sure. Yeah. We can go a little bit into that. One of the first things to understand, because when one of the problems people do have with the idea that, you know, we, when I position uh, homo sapiens origins in Australia is that the lack of physical evidence going back far enough. Cause, cause what we have, you have a couple of different issues there, but we know today that humans of one sort or another, managed to cross into uh, Oceania, into basically the islands, the Indonesian, what we call today the Indonesian islands, and you know probably as far as sort of Papua, that there was people moving around at least about a million years ago in that region. Now that came as quite a shock because it was thought for a very long time that no large mammals could cross what's called Wallace's line, which is a geological and kind of environmental barrier between mainland Southeast Asia and Australasia. That you know, you basically don't really Strong currents and stuff that go through the islands. So uh, only a few things have ever got you know got through there, like rats, and you know a few other things that have managed to float across on maybe bits of wood, or you know, or particularly good swimmers or something. But for the last, most part, of course, we know that we had a unique flora and fauna down in Australasia, right? You know, got marsupials and all sorts of strange plants and so they're unique to that region. Now, so it came as quite a shock when it turned out that a million years ago there was humans on, like Flores, for example and on some of the other islands that, you know, and there's, there's tools and bones that support this idea that probably something like a Homo erectus or a Homo habilis or something was down there able to move between these islands. And, and crossing that current suggests that they had watercraft. Now, that doesn't mean it was, you know, uh, you know technological sort of submarine or anything, you know, really wild, but they probably did have something like bamboo rafts. You know, bamboo rafts is somewhat, simple you know in, in the end day, you can see bamboo floating in rivers and you know it floats right so kind of straightforward so if you can if you can figure out to wrap vines around a few pieces of bamboo you've got a reasonable watercraft yeah that's sufficient to cross you know quite quite large bodies of water so it may have been something like that could have been hollowed out logs you know um, again st- straightforward things they don't have to be huge engineering projects but they had the ability to to actively Cross water and in numbers sufficient to form stable communities, which means quite a few, you know, hominins had to brave it and go out to sea and cross to another island, or in some cases cross water where it wasn't obvious that there'd be an island. But once you get down to Flores, you're not far really from Australia. You've done the hard work. You've got past Wallace's line. You know, you've you have now able to move between islands there's There's this enormous continent to the south of you, and in fact, you've been washed out to sea on a boat. There's a good chance you'll hit the Australian mainland, right? So if you've got people down there a million years ago and they've they've done all the hard work, there's a very good chance they hit Australia within, let's be really generous and say a hundred thousand years, that you know, within a hundred thousand years, some of these people are going to have reached Australia. So why don't we see obvious evidence of them? Well, it turns out that over the period till now, a vast, a vast amount of the coastline of what was then the Sahul plate has been covered with water. And so you've lost, you know, between that and the Sunda plate, which is mainland Southeast Asia, you've lost almost a continent's worth of land due to rising sea levels. So if you think of these initial colonies, you know, were coastal people using sea resources, which is very typical for early hominins, that those will now be deep under the sea. So you don't find those. So what instead you find is the first early evidence is about 120,000 years old. There's a few controversial things at the moment being found. Uh, Evidence of possibly fire stick farming and of um, shell middens, which is like discarded shells that have been eaten and cooked or whatever. And you've got um, some early um, sort of physical archaeology tools and stuff going back, maybe 80,000 or so. So they know there's definitely early presence of humans that were earlier than was expected again it used to be think that humans arrived there about 40 50 thousand years ago until fairly recently now we're seeing that there's evidence of 120 or so i think the evidence of the really early arrival is under the sea unfortunately um, but we know that there is anomalies with the dna that link them to the, the founding or colonizing of eurasia from there and that's that if we when we look at the genetics of Aboriginal people, and you contrast them to say Africans and Europeans and Asians, that the Europeans and Asians, they cluster with Aboriginal people, and all of which are somewhat distant to African people. And so a lot of people find it kind of surprising that, you know, Aboriginal, black Aboriginal people are much closer to white Eurasian people than they are to black African people. That there's, in fact, the two most divergent populations in the world are aboriginal australians and sub-saharan africans so they are the furthest en route to becoming truly distinct um, in terms of you know i I'm not quite talking to subspecies but heading that way you know that they're, they're the, cl- the closest to becoming fully divergent uh, everyone else is kind of clusters now that that again is kind of funny because it kind of indicates something's going on there and when you look a bit deeper you find also that there was evidence that these Africans and Aboriginals, they diverge about 70,000 years ago. Now, this comes loops back to what I was saying earlier, that 70,000 years ago, you've got a climatic disaster across the Northern Hemisphere, which if it's displaced the connecting population, so this was all once one interbreeding population with gene flow between regions. So they all kind of progressed together. But once that middle population in your in across Eurasia has been largely wiped out or reduced to very small pockets, there's no flow of genes between Africa and Eurasia anymore. You get divergence, and that's exactly what we see in the DNA. So we can, see, and then you find that there is a very close, tight, you know, links to the early Asians and then from them the early Europeans because these people are coming up into Asia, and we can trace this with the with the various haplogroups, that so the next kind of population in Asia is very closely linked to Aboriginals. And that then they move further both north and west. They go up to the Himalayas and stuff, but they also move west, eventually reaching Europe around about sort of around about fifty thousand years ago, sort of forty five thousand years ago. And then they even go into northern Africa. And there's some you know pockets there where they you know, enter into africa and so this is the actual the model of the the flow of these haplogroups across europe show us is, a, is an expansion that's going from basically from the southeast down southeast asia and australasia into asia and then into europe and of course that all runs entirely backward to what was expected which would be we would see the oldest groups in the middle east that you know all the we'd see all the genetics would link to a really old you know population that come out of africa into the middle east and then expand from there it, it does not show that at all it shows conversely that we've come up from australasia and southeast asia and in recent studies two studies one has shown that the oldest um, male lineages trace back to down to southeast asia and indeed yeah the oldest female lineages traced back to Australasia and East Asia and stuff. So they've tried to kind of conjure up this idea. Maybe that there was another population that was then from Africa and was replaced and stuff. But if you go on just the evidence, what it tells you is these people are coming up from Southeast Asia and that region, and then they, they head westward and populate into Europe and even reach Africa. So it's kind of very telling. But, you know, obviously this is later over time. But you've got an early population that I suggest would be in place, certainly should be, by around 900,000 years there's no reason that they wouldn't be and that there is where we have this interesting evolutionary event with then populations migrating out of australasia back up into asia and we see in east asia particularly in china what's called early transitional fossils so say 700,000 years ago ish onwards you've got quite a lot of fossils that suggest early transition from kind of homo erectus like features to homo sapiens like features that are underway now you don't see that in, Af- in the african fossil record till about 500 500 years ago so again that's very interesting it looks like the evolution you know is for our lineage is primarily happening down in east asia with a, a, a migration into africa probably something like five hundred thousand years ago so you know again the finds don't really support this idea that this is all happening in Africa. Um, certainly, yeah, some of it does, you know, and I, I'm not biased particularly. I don't really think it matters in a way where it's happening. A lot of people do put a lot beyond that, but I think if you just follow the track of the evidence, it looks like it's, again, going from east to west, and then, you know, there's people who can go west to east again and east to west again. You know, people move around, you know, move around. But the the main parts of this story are beginning down in that region. I guess going a little bit
1: outward again, the Proposed panspermia, do you think that that civilization, whoever it may be, is consistently observing or even still visiting us? And could there be other races that are interested in our species, our planet, our solar system?
2: Yeah, I mean, I personally do. You know, my experience and research sort of tend towards the view that there are intelligences that have remained interested in this planet from the beginning till now and that you know if something has seeded this world you know which again is my preference out of the um the models is that it's you know some kind of deliberate seeding but even if it wasn't even if let's say that there was accidental scene on a panspermia event life on this planet could be detected up to about two billion years ago due to the oxygen signature so that would make earth interesting so even if say like say no aliens knew about us and that we did emerge from you know a other kind of panspermia event, or even from abiogenesis. The reality is, intelligent beings could see Earth as an interesting planet as early as two billion years ago by looking at the oxygen signature. Now, if you look at the other planets, from what we've done so far, with our, you know, well, at least what astronomers have done so far, we haven't found any indications of other planets like Earth, okay? You know, not with this sort of clear oxygen signature, which suggests a biosphere. We found lots of barren planets. Right. So Earth would be intrinsically interesting to probes or exploration. Now two billion years that's plenty of time for a lot of different civilizations to have detected us and been here. Now, if any of them found this to be an interesting planet, then they could certainly mark it or leave, let's say, leave a, a sentinel probe like a Bracewell Sentinel probe, which is a theoretical, um, you know, artificial intelligent probe that could just sit in the solar system and monitor events, you know, relay back any changes here, you know, any evolutionary developments. And there's no particular reason why we couldn't have lots of these things sitting, you know, in our, you know, in orbit somewhere or in the asteroid belt or on planetary surfaces, monitoring Earth and monitoring our solar system, right? So, I suggest that that would have happened. That's my that would be my feeling that, that, you know, you've had plenty of time for that to happen. If other civilizations are interested in life or other planets out in the solar system or expanding outwards, looking for new worlds to colonize, the Earth is a is a beacon of light in the darkness. Uh, so if that has occurred and there's been visitation early on, I would expect them to leave some kind of level of monitoring as it being such an interesting planet. So if they have also, it seems Um, interacted in terms of our evolution more than once you know going back maybe to the cambrian explosion and then onwards there's every reason to think that this interest in our evolution would continue you know and we look today at the modern ufo phenomena the ufo phenomena makes more sense in a in a picture where you've got prehistoric contact than it does in in a scenario of this being some kind of alien arrival from space in modern times and in fact if you look at why academic scientists have dismissed the idea of of UFOs as alien spaceships, you know, apart from the fact that you know they haven't got a crashed UFO available to study, a, a lot of the dismissal comes out of the idea of the unlikelihood, the statistics of this, that that it just so happens that aliens, you know, arrive in their spaceships just as we enter our own space age and are able to, you know, send rockets up there and have radio telescopes, that it just seems it seems awfully convenient. You know, that just as we reach that point, aliens arrive. And so statistically, that is so unlikely that the aliens would arrive in any single, say, 100-year slice of time, such as you know ours, that that is so unlikely. What's quite likely is aliens arriving somewhere in the last 4.5 billion years ago, right? Because it's the difference between me going to the shore, casting my line to catch a fish, and I give it five minutes, you know, and uh, nothing Walk off and think, well, it turns out the ocean is empty, right? There's no fish. Or I get in my boat and I go on a fishing expedition for six months with my nets out. Uh, and I come back with a bounty of fish, right? Because what we've employed there is time, isn't it? You know, so As soon as you give lots more time to the search, then the possibilities of finding things open up more and more. So if there's an expectation that if aliens had been here, it would have been in the past. And that's where you get loop back around to the Fermi paradox, that they thought, well, there's no sign of it. So then there seems to be there probably aren't any. And then again, reduces the chances of them are suddenly appearing now. Um, And again, the statistics, you know, worsen for that scenario. So that's why you can see why a lot of scientists just dismiss the idea. But if you can show that there was visitation in the past, well then, hang on a minute, then these UFOs suddenly have to be seen through a new, you know, kind of um, light, because then you say, well, hang on a minute, if they were in the past, why couldn't they still be here? And maybe some of these aerial anomalies we're seeing are the grid that monitor this planet and that they have a function here either to keep an eye on things or to directly evolve life here that they have some mysterious evolutionary function right and so that's that's where i look at it. And i think that they i think that some of them probably at least some of them fall into that category as some kind of evolutionary control system and i know that um you know dr jacques Vallée has kind of alluded to something like that So people that are familiar with his work, you know, as a scientist and a kind of a UFO kind of, you know, researcher. I don't know if you can say an expert, if anyone's can be an expert on something that's unidentified is a bit, <laughs> you, know, you can't really be, but you know, certainly, uh, you know, he is an expert in terms of the, the research available in the topic area. You know, he came to that kind of conclusion. There's probably maybe some kind of evolutionary control grid. And I, I suspect there is that. So what we see is happening specifically to, Cause us to go in a particular evolutionary direction or a, a direction of thought and consciousness, and that this is some kind of alien grid that we are witnessing with this phenomena in the skies, but that it's very old and links back to these past visitations. Now, in particular, my focus has been a visitation around 788,000 years ago. I mean, I don't know if you want me to very briefly go into that one some of the evidence for it and why why my focus is on that yeah absolutely it's your platform okay yeah well well the reasoning is i mean there was um let put this in a brief way i can basically i encountered some, some suggestions of uh, there being an artifact an alien artifact in australia it's called a, the actual object called a charinga or a tringer stone now it's a small handheld artifact from it's described that is considered very sacred as a receptacle of knowledge and in fact in the aboriginal law is essentially alive it's like a, a container of consciousness of a of an al being which is a, a being from the creation time or the dream time and that these Turingas, um basically were the beings themselves having transformed themselves into forms that were you know would impermeable to time and could persist on Alongside us, right now, that's a very close approximation of a Bracewell Sentinel probe. Interestingly enough, because we're told that that a Bracewell Sentinel probe might be some kind of you know small silica technology that could be left on a planetary surface, you know, with a in housing an AI like a self-aware AI, and that would monitor events, but that could also activate and make contact with a civilization. Now. Uh, a couple of different people, a Australian lady called um, Valerie Barrow and an Aboriginal elder called Jerry Bostock had these direct interactions with this artifact. And they started having this information put directly into their heads. Now, you say, oh, it sounds crazy, but we know that today we have voice-to-skull technologies, so I don't see why an alien probe wouldn't have something like that to get around language barriers, that they had a direct communication. They were told that there was this lost history of humanity and that there'd been a visitation to this planet with this vast, silica ai ship that had arrived had been destroyed in orbit um debris had been showered down and that um five years after that there had been another visitation by another group connected with them and that these beings had unleashed kind of cataclysm that they'd hit the planet with asteroids from different sides and the other part that was particularly interesting to me was that then some of these beings who'd survived this destruction event the initial ai ship being destroyed had modified early hominins that they had landed in um, smaller craft that they weren't able to live here permanently because the environment wasn't suitable for them and that they used genetic engineering technologies normally to modify themselves to live on new planets and actually that makes a lot of sense again you know if we're talking about real alien kind of problems right because lots of you don't hear about that you know how can you just live on any planet how can aliens arrive and walk around and do what they want but if you use these technologies and I think if anyone's familiar there's a film recently with um, this idea that you know some people being sent to Titan—I think it's actually called Titan, isn't it? I, I think there's a like a Netflix movie. Or something. Oh, but they, yeah. Mo- yep. Yeah. They modify some soldiers or something, so they become kind of amphibian-like. You know, <laughs> gas breathing. You know, it's kind of hominins of some sort, but you know, these kind of aliens really. And then they descend the guy, and he can now live on Titan in its atmosphere. So you think about this—is the kind of this is also something NASA is looking at—the idea of modifying astronauts so that they can survive on Mars and stuff. So although it sounds kind of crazy, this is science we're looking at. So there's a description that these beings usually do this, and but they haven't had the chance to complete the process before their ship is destroyed in orbit. And so instead, they realize they can't survive, but they, they take some of the hominins that obviously can, and they modify them, blending something of themselves into this hominins. And they view that as a kind of continuation of their mission to colonize this planet. So it might be seen somewhat abstract to us, but they see that as a continuation of their attempt to colonize this planet. So they change the humans to be more like them. So that kind of making us in their image, kind of almost biblical type scenario. But I find it fascinating because first of all, you've got this object, which, you know, the Aboriginal law itself, this ancient law, makes it sound exactly like what we would expect of a bracewell probe you know this this knowledge carrying self-aware artifact that can make contact with people and has a a storage of all the events that have happened on this planet which is exactly what we'd expect from a bracewell sentinel probe and that this information then i used that from those claims, because of course, you know, a claim is just a claim, like, you know, anyone says they're channeling or they saw an alien, whatever it is, you know, if, if you can't take useful information from that and validate it, it just stays as like a cool story, bro, you know, type scenario, right? And there's, there's hundreds of those. If not thousands of those from you know contact type experiences. But the difference here was I thought, well, hang on a minute. If a vast silica AI ship blew up in orbit, could some debris remain? You know, also if there is a multi-directional asteroid impact, you know, could scars of that be found? And of course, if humans were modified, could there be genetic anomalies that would support that? And could these three events you know stand somewhere in the same time period because you know if if those three things existed and were linked in time well in my view that's pretty much you know a very very solid case that you're dealing with a real information being transmitted from this artifact right because otherwise you'd expect it to be basically none of that to be real you know it would be the normal case Would you not be able to just validate anything if it's just made up So I was quite shocked when I started to look into this and I found that in fact that um, around 780,000 years ago, you have a whole slew of strange things that happen. And one of these is evidence of a large object exploding in orbit and leaving this debris field called the australite tektite strewn field which stretches from china all the way down to antarctica and out you know the size to madagascar and out beyond papua it's just absolutely vast like 20 to 30 percent of the earth's surface and that this material is part of a 160 year long mystery you know since the first scientific papers were done about it by actually by Charles Darwin again, which is funny enough, which is kind of a synchronicity there, because we're talking about human origins, and Charles Darwin's the first person to write about this stuff. Um and then it, there was all sorts of theories about how it formed. But the bottom line is it's um with the NASA studies that were done on it, they they kind of concluded that the only way to explain it is that certainly these what's called tectite buttons, and people can look these up, that this have aerodynamic shapes. So these buttons have to have been cold glass spheres that formed in a high energy event in space in vacuum basically so out in space and that the angles that they came in at had been quite shallow they said in other words like like an object in a satellite something breaking up in orbit and the debris following the orbital path but it's gradually you know descending so it comes in at a very gentle angle and has this melting which allows the front end to kind of become fluidic and and, and move back to, to form these kind of almost bullet shapes and that it has to come in at this very gentle angle but at high speeds and like kind of bouncing along the edge of the atmosphere and then descending most of these came in across southern australia Um, there's no real conventional way this can happen in terms of say an impact there's the the long-standing popular consensus theory at the moment is that there was an asteroid impact but they can't the reason why it's still a mystery is because they have to explain how this material all ends up flying back up into space and then coming in at these angles these gentle angles and at these colossal speeds which are near to the um near to the speed to actually exit our atmosphere so something like maybe 10 kilometers per second or something like so some incredible speeds so that doesn't fit so there's a lot of anomalies that have meant that this has never been really solved the nasa guys for a long time thought that it was debris from the moon that there had been an impact on the moon and some sort of glass from volcanoes on the moon had been displaced that was eventually just disproved because we've got lunar material and we found it wasn't it didn't correspond but they kind of said well look if you're gonna claim it's an impact on earth you've got to explain all these anomalies like you know how the glass was mixed and free of of water and bubbles and stuff which is not what we expect in impacts you expect very foamy glass And if anyone's seen nuclear um, glass from test sites it looks yeah air pockets and stuff huh? yeah yeah exactly when you get an impact you get that kind of glass because it's a, it's a quick high energy event so you get this very foamy glass it's full of bubbles it's full of partly melted material like pieces of sand and mud and stuff and you know and it's made from exactly the same chemical composition you know as the rock around the site of course uh, and there's all these factors when you look at these australite tectites it's not you know it's not foamy it's in fact all the bubbles are gone it's very well mixed uh, there's almost no water content so this all indicates that it was heated in a, a different way over a period of time or more like volcanic glass or our uh, artificial glasses which we heat in a cold era for like hours and so. So, so that can't happen in an impact event so there's a whole i mean there's, there's more anomalies than that i mean i i don't drag you down with it but there's a lot of anomalies that point to this being from an object that exploded in orbit around the earth about 788,000 years ago. So knowing that, I was like, well, that's kind of mind-bending because now you've got, you know, support for one of the biggest claims that there's this silica object and that, you know, it melted and debris rained down. And I turned out, there's this, okay, there's this australite tech mystery, which would be a very nice hand-in-glove fit. And then um, I also discovered that around 2015-2016 there was a german geological team who uncovered evidence that around 780 to 790 thousand years ago earth was hit by several asteroids from different directions with um, impacts in central america tasmania parts of asia and that, that they said you know this wasn't one object breaking up because when they tested it at the chemical level they found that you know these different sites have different chemical signatures so these are different asteroids all bombarding us at the same time and again the dating you know is in that same time again right um, and then the, the other two things and one interesting fact actually is that you have the last magnetic pole reversal is 780,000 years ago now this isn't isn't completely separate it's thought that maybe some of these impacts actually caused that but so you've got another mega event going on and then the last one of course is human origins and having written the book Forgotten Exodus and having a familiarity with the human origin story Already knew that there was, um you know, a changes in that story that supported this work because we now know that the the kind of divergence of Denisovans, Neanderthal ancestors, and us, you know, that is occurring around about seven hundred and fifty thousand years ago ish. Some people saying you know seven to eight or nine, but the the, the, the preponderance of Evidence and anomalies suggest that the split is underway around this sort of seven to eight hundred thousand years ago, and that you then get these multiple large-brained hominins. And one key event that happens at the beginning of that split is the fusion of chromosome two, and that occurs right beforehand and is in all is in in Denisovans and Neanderthals and us. So we have these two chromosomes fusing, an end-to-end fusion on an active gene that's to do with reproduction, the immune system, and um, the brain. We also have some really interesting anomalies that appear. There's a couple different genes. There's a brain gene that appears. It's described as being, uh, appears fully formed from out of non-coding DNA. It's almost like magically appears, and it's a key brain gene. And then you've got another one, which is described as looking almost like a segment of a longer gene that has been cut, replicated, and put back in right and so you've got a little like sequences and these are things we do now cut off segments of genes you splice them back in to give new traits and so and also you know what's something we can't really do is just make a gene appear out of non-coding dna but there's there's you know there's evidence there of some very strange things and i don't too much time but i try and quickly get onto one of the most fascinating ones which is human accelerated regions because human accelerated regions to me are almost like um the fingerprint of uh astonishingly advanced genetic engineers because when if you're ever going to look for a message in dna for example you know and obviously some people have considered this over the years that maybe be aliens left a message in our dna that because of evolutionary forces changing genes any messages in genes would be lost over time random mutations and you know other things that happen um, information moves around so, so you you would lose that message but so they say if you're going to hope to find anything or if an alien wanted to leave a message it, you should look in what's called highly conserved non-coding regions so these don't code for genes and they're highly conserved they, they hardly change over vast periods of time now What happened is a few years back, someone detected in one of these highly conserved non-coding DNA areas some really interesting segments of code where it appeared that evolution had operated at a different speed to normal. And I agree that the stark example is HAR1, the first one that was detected. Now, this is a 100 and I think it's a 118 DNA letter long segment, which is quite short, a lot shorter than genes. And, so. and um, they compared it between a chicken, a chimpanzee, and a human being. And between the chicken and the chimpanzee, there's been 300 million years of divergent evolution, so loads of time. And two letters had changed. So, okay, one successful letter change every 150 million years, suggesting that whatever that code does was quite important. It's very stable. If it changes, the organism basically dies or doesn't replicate, right? So it takes that long to get two successful small mutations. Then they compared the chimp and the human being, which have had about 7 million years um, separate evolution, obviously expecting to see no difference. What they found was 18 letters had changed, Right. So it was like, whoa, hang on a minute. Uh, and when they ran the biostatistical kind of um, software around this, they came to the conclusion that there was a sti- statistically a zero or close to zero percent chance of this change happening by any understood evolutionary mechanisms. So that was, that's how it's kind of left off. And to this day, these HARs, and there's now hundreds of them, um, they are not understood. And the latest kind of Position in various papers is that some of them maybe you can hypothesize for, but the the bulk of them are just totally mysterious. We don't know how they happen, and they cluster in the the formation of the brain during the fetal stages of development. Right. So if we're talking about signs of someone modifying fetuses in early hominins, right, and changing the brain, it, it's quite telling that you don't find that these are just scattered. You know that they're doing all sorts of things. Not to say some aren't. But what we've found so far, the ones we understand, are clustered in modifi- modifying the brain during fetal development. Now, that doesn't sound very random to me. It does not sound random at all. And we, so we have those. We have the HARs. We have these mysterious genes, you know, which are appearing or of segments of longer genes. And then we have this chromosomal fusion event. And that these all are clustering at the beginning of this period when the Homo sapiens brain goes into a super... Uh, super accelerated development phase from around 800,000 years ago. We know that in the fossil record. That for a long time, it was known that there was an anomalous event around 800,000 years ago because you can see in the charts that our, our cranial capacity just goes really up, 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 up in the charts, right? So that was known. But now we have the genetic data showing that, yes, there's a slew of anomalies that occur at that point. And there we are right on the same date period as the magnetic reversal, the asteroid bombardment, you know, this strange object breaking up and leaving silica melt across, you know, China and Australia and, and Antarctica. You know, these are all clustered. And there's this, the, the height of weirdness, of course, is there's this artifact, which is apparently has told this, you know, elder and this lady that this is the story of our origins, that these beings that came here in this craft and they've modified us. We've now got you know free for free, massive events. They're described all having real world supporting data, and so that's that's where I'm at with it. It's just to me, it's mind bending. But you know, it, it's validated. I don't know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it was mind bending. You just you think well, it, with that amount of time, even if it was real, there wouldn't be evidence. So I was kind of blown away to find actually there is evidence.
0: That's absolutely extraordinary. It makes you rethink everything really uh when it comes to you know our evolutionary history as human beings and maybe even starts to delve
2: into that uh why are we here question it's very interesting absolutely you know um i did a talk the other day and one of the guys said it took him about you know 40 minutes to put his head back together (laughs) and accept that (laughs) alien, alien ancestry in his dna you know so i mean yeah it's 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 a bit of a mind bender and i you know it's I understand why some people would automatically reject it because maybe they find it uncomfortable. Um, but the evidence is that I'd also encourage people to explore that evidence themselves. You know, again, it's too big mm. to just say, take my word for it. I would say, like, you know, read the studies and see if you come to that conclusion because it is so profound.
0: We have so much to digest. Amazing. Hushlings, I hope you enjoyed this episode because – we are reeling right now. Bruce, let everybody know. Let the Hushlings know where they can find you, again, about your books, where we can get everything, and, uh, and how we can connect with you.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, if people are interested in the books, obviously, they, they can go to Amazon and get them, or they should be able to go into a bookstore, you know, and order through their local bookstore. Uh, if they want a signed copy, they can email me, bruce at brucefenton.info and request that or go on eBay I've got some on eBay but if they look for you know signed copies they'll only account with signed copies is my one um, if they want to just follow me online then Twitter is probably a good place you know which is exogenesis HH and uh, I do have you know Facebook for Bruce R Fenton is my author page and also website Bruce there's not a lot of content there but again you know basic stuff there Uh, those are probably the the main places also i'm on telegram i've created a telegram which is um bruce fenton versus the apocalypse so if they want to (laughs) sign up on there as well you know and um i am starting a discord it's not really not a lot in it yet but i am starting it so people can email me and ask me about that or message me on twitter if they get interested and that's where i'm going to hopefully take people through some of this evidence to a point where they really have you know self-conviction or can challenge me you know, on the evidence.
0: I think we will also be joining that discord. Hell yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we will.
0: Again, Bruce, thank you so much. We had a great time and so informational. And I really hope that this talk has the hushlings thinking about where they
2: came from and how kind of special they are in the cosmos. Yeah. I mean, I hopefully it does make people think, you know, and again, that we're not just, uh, we haven't just crawled out of a, a muddy pool and we, you know, we're just, you know, these, <laughs> I think it's a much more cosmic, interesting uh, view of our story than just, you know, that we are, you know, sacks of bacteria <laughs> that crawled out of a muddy puddle <laughs> and, and that's it, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you again, Bruce and Hushlings. We will see you on the next one. Thank you so
1: much. Hushlings, join us next time. Give your attention to Slick Slickfrock Sanders and the Mollywop Band. And good night. Okay